This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, August 17th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm here today because this is Thursday with Luke Guerrero. Welcome back after a brief break last week with a little COVID, right? Just a small bout of COVID. It's good to be back. Certainly better than in my house for seven straight days. Yeah, I'm sure that was not fun. Uh, hopefully, we're at least productive in that time. And uh, that's our goal here is to be productive and into the second half of the year, historically a more volatile part of the year. And it's certainly living up to the hype so far. And liquidity becoming choppier in markets. You're seeing that play out probably in your portfolios and in markets. And and our job here is to help give you a balanced view. Nothing, we're never going into going to hell in a handbasket and nothing's as rosy as uh, people like to make them seem when the market's good, right? There's always a middle ground and a, a gray area and that's what we we're trying to help you uncover. What part of the gray area uh, are is your portfolio in, uh, the p- particular positions you in, the different asset classes, and how does that line up with the economic backdrop that we are seeing? And so this Invest Talk podcast is really about you and helping you have the right mindset to make good, consistent decisions with your money. A lot of variables to consider, and I caution you that you should never let emotions drive your thought process. And that's usually the the main problem, right? chasing returns, listening to stock tips from friends or family or or, or Jim Cramer, for example. Um, so you know all of these places are filled with hyperbole, and that's not what investing is about. It's not about hyperbole. It's about the facts on the ground and keeping those facts grounded. And of course, we're here to guide you in the best way we can with unbiased answers to your investing questions, you can call right now. And our phone line never closes. It's 888-99-CHART. Now, our main focus point today looks in the story behind price increases on streaming services and how does that impact the bottom line and eventually stock performance. And I know, Luke, you really like this article. You read it, you read it first and you loved it. And then I read it and I loved it too because there's so much data here that I think we'll be able to unpack. Yeah, definitely. It's it's one of those interesting things because for so long a lot of these streaming services have been losing money, and if you think about it, you know they're not charging that much money to begin with uh, for their ad free tier. So I've always thought to myself, how are they making money? Turns out they haven't been. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But now they are kind of testing the limits of price increases, and it actually hits. So we talked about this a little before the show, but we'll talk about it on air as well about how. The how higher interest rates in many ways actually is inflationary, not deflationary in certain parts of the, the economy. So we're going to look at that story. Also, Walmart. Walmart had earnings and they lifted their full year guidance. But what is what did what did they say about the consumer and what that might mean for the broader economy and other retail stocks as well? Also, China 
in the most in, in the most recent inflation data actually fell into deflation. Now, is that something to worry about or is that something that's temporary? So it's one piece of data, but we're going to dig in a little deeper. And then lastly, if we have time, we're going to look at VinFast. It's a Vietnamese electric car maker. Yeah, a Vietnamese. I, I didn't know they they, they had a, a, any car makers over there, but they do. So we're going to look at their SPAC offering and the valuation and how it, what it tells you about the value of car companies or just companies in general when the float is very thin. Spoiler alert, they haven't really made that many cars. Uh, spoil when you say that many, are we talking on a single hand? I think uh not on a single hand, a little bit more than that, but in the US it's almost a single hand how many they've sold. Wow, okay. Well hopefully we have time to get to that story. Luke picked a lot of these these topics, so uh I think they're they're all very good. Hopefully we can get to them all. Now we also have some voice bank questions that we'll get to. One is on moving averages as well as Google. And I have this all planned for this episode of Invest Talk. And of course, your live calls as well at 888 chart. Now let's check in on the market today. It was decidedly red day in the markets and mainly on the growth side. You had large cap growth down about 1.4%, mid cap down 1.6%, and small cap growth down over 2%. Still red on the on, on the value side of the market, but certainly uh, much better there. And you're starting to see those liquidity dynamics, Luke, uh, start to ebb, whereas most of the year they were flowing pretty nicely due to the Treasury General account being wound down and some, some Treasury uh, issuance that was more on the short end of the curve. Now they're issuing long-dated securities, and that's uh, certainly pulling liquidity out of the market. Yeah, it certainly is. And more than that, I think there's been sort of a narrative shift that there is a possibility that in November uh, there may be another rate hike. The chance of that is now standing at 34% as of today. So really you have what we have been talking about for some time is a divergence from the equity markets and the bond markets. They're signaling something different. And like we've said before, the bond markets tend to be right. So this pullback is really just a lot of chickens coming home to roost. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that they're, they're, they've taken any rate cut by the end of the year pretty much off the table. Yeah. Which is, I mean, there's a 13% chance that we get one in December. And, uh, but... I I I would say I would call the bluff there. I, I really don't feel like the Fed needs to do much more at all. Um, but we'll see. And, and maybe it has to do with not just interest rates. Most people think, oh, the Fed, their main mechanism for monetary policy is raising or lowering interest rates. But there's obviously more QT, uh, reverse repo, et cetera, that they can uh, move the liquidity uh, situation in markets either more hawkishly or more dovishly. So I think that's actually more interesting. And, and Jackson Hole, what is, do you know when the Jackson Hole? Next Thursday, next, next Friday? Yeah, so late late, late next, next week. week. Yeah. So uh, that'll be interesting to see what comes out of there. Uh, but ultimately, we are in the, in, in the time of year where you, you typically see some volatility uh, late August into September, 
maybe parts of October as well. So it would not shock me to continue to see a choppy kind of pullback over the next few weeks. So that's kind of where we're at. And liquidity, I know after hours, didn't Bitcoin have a big drop lower as well? Bitcoin had a drop. The S&P's down another 18 basis points. Nothing too crazy on the U.S. equity side after hours. Yeah, but certainly today you had weakness in technology down over 1%. Industrials actually weak as well, a little over 1%. Consumer defensive down 1%. And consumer cyclicals led by the home builders down pretty big today. That was down 1.62%. Let's see, what was... Energy is the big bright spot of the day. Yeah, that was up uh, about 1% today. Yeah. Yeah. And the ITB, the home builder, home construction ETF, down 4.25%. So that's what really was dragging down the consumer cyclical part of the market. And do you think that was maybe some indication from Home Depot, right? Their earnings were yesterday. So there's been some follow through there. So home builders have been strong, but the market is starting to change their tune on that. Just in time, just after that recent news that Warren Buffett was had bought a bunch of home builders. So always interesting. Buy the rumor, sell the news, maybe on that one. So that was the market today. Definitely red, and we'll see if we get some more follow through tomorrow. Now we're gonna head into a break. So let me tell you about. A new video feature we are producing. It's called the Invest Talk Sector Spotlight. It is free, and our second episode is up on the energy sector over on our YouTube channel. We touch on the war in Ukraine and the opportunities and risks in the energy market today. So head over and subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Now, the phone lines are open, ready for your questions at 888 chart Justin Klein talks about the KPP Financial Premium Newsletter. I want to remind you that this is a time where you probably need some guidance and you're tuning in to try to get our view of the markets. And we only have an hour here. And and sometimes the way I distill each day can be maybe not enough, maybe not enough time. And so our premium newsletter is a great tool for especially newer investors trying to learn some things. The KPP Financial Premium Newsletter comes to your mailbox every Saturday. Learn how to analyze the market, learn what the economic numbers mean, learn how to manage a portfolio, maybe get an idea of what are good companies to be at least looking at. Maybe you don't buy it today, but you should always have a watch list of companies that hey, these are interesting. These have good businesses. And if they get the right price, maybe I should buy them. So our newsletter is a great tool for that. Subscribe anytime at investtalk.com. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Investtalk, 888-99-CHART. Hey, Stephen, Justin, it's Art from Tucson. I'm calling in about CVS. I have a small position in it. Took a big tumble today after, I guess, Blue Shield of California pulled out of its partnership with the uh, drugstore chain and wondered what you thought here. I thought it was pretty cheap already. Not sure how this will affect it, its profits going forward, but um, wondering if it's a good time to pick up more or just hold it or get rid of it. And I'll listen on the podcast and um, appreciate all you guys do for us. Thanks. All right, looking at CVS Health, and you're right, the news today was that Blue Shield of California, Blue Shield of California, was actually turning to Amazon for their pharmacy benefits management, and that's about five million members here in California, and 
Obviously, that's going to be a hit, uh, not near term. It's supposed to happen in 2025, so nothing uh, over the next uh, year or so. But that, that certainly is a big hit. Uh, CVS has about 80% of the prescription drug market. Excuse me. Uh, is one of the three firms that control about 80% of the, the pharmacy benefit management uh, market as well as Cigna. And uh, sorry. Cigna is another insurance company. I'm sorry. Yeah, so they're one of three. Uh, and so this is going to be uh, a hit to their their bottom line, and that's why the market sank. Now, the big question is, how widespread will this be? Uh, it seems like CVS and the other PBMs will have to adjust their prices. They have a new player in town, and that is Amazon, and that should, that could be uh, a headwind. Now, it still is very cheap, and if, even if you back out uh, the, the, that potential earnings, but it certainly is a risk. Is it cheap enough, Luke? Right now, it depends on how much you model in for a decline in earnings in 2025, right? Yeah, from my perspective, this is news that broke today. And although information tends to be incorporated, especially for these large companies relatively quickly, I still don't think we know to the extent that earnings are going to be impacted down the road. So even if you think it's cheap now, this for me is a price discovery phase because this is a pretty big change. So certainly this is something that you could watch, but I certainly would not buy it today. Yeah, and, and remember that this is a small, smaller slice of their business. The, still, the ma vast majority of their revenues and profits come from them being uh, a drug a drugstore, uh, and so you know this is has an impact. But you know, what does it mean that their their business is going to hell in a handbasket again? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, long term, I think it is a cheap price. At the same time, CVS. though, if, if a company like Blue Cross Blue Shield is willing to transition into CVS for this type of business to two different businesses that are trying to take away their share of drug sales, mm -hmm. uh, that could mean a lot for you know the second order effects of what this means for the industry. Exactly. I think that's what you have to worry about is what happens to uh, other with other drug companies, uh, sorry, uh, healthcare companies, Cigna, United Health, do they start looking at this option as well? So that's really the, the bigger worry. Now, uh, for me, it hasn't broken to new lows. And from a technical perspective, that would be important. If it does and closes there, like on a weekly basis, that would be an indication that, you know, maybe this is the start of a, a broader trend. All right. Now, let's touch a bit on this article. We're probably not going to get to it all before this next break, but our main focus point is in regards to streaming or streamflation. I think it's a new word. Streamflation. I love that. I love that. They, they, they start off this article with that word, streamflation, and that's because the average cost of watching a major ad-free streaming service is going up about 25% over the past year. And... The large streaming giants are betting either they'll pay up, they'll pay more, or they will they will switch to what's surprising here is a more lucrative ad-free supported tier that most of them have, have launched. And so, you know, last week Disney raised its prices for Disney Plus and Hulu for the second time since last fall. And this is on the heels of Peacock. Max, which I can't believe they drop HBO, so stupid. Uh, Paramount Plus and Apple TV all looking to raise prices as well. So this is certainly a trend. And after the break, we're going to dig into this data and figure out how will this impact their businesses. Now we're going into a quick break. Remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Invest Talk Voice Bank, or if you're listening via the live stream or on AM 1220 Radio in Silicon Valley, you can call now at 888 99 Chart. 
everybody wants a secure financial future, that means you'll have finance and investment questions. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Now, before the break, we talked about streamflation, and this is a recent trend, Luke, and I, I know you were surprised that they're doing this not just because they know they can hold on to customers, but they're actually kind of happy if people switch over to the ad-supported tiers, which they make more money right now, right? Yeah, and you know, Bob Iger made the point, Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, that they created this industry, this streaming industry, and they put the cart before the horse. They didn't know how it was going to make money. Mm-hmm. And for a really long time, it didn't make money, it turns out. And so now in the, a lot of ways, it still doesn't. In a lot of ways, it still doesn't. So now they have this huge customer base. And they've gotten to the point where they can keep pushing the price of an ad-free version up. And if they hold on to people, which so far there's been a 94% retention rate, I believe, in Disney+, Plus, that's great. But even if they don't keep them on the ad-free tier and they push them to ad support, they actually make more money that way. Yeah. I'll, well, see, I'm, I'll be interested to know, are they going to make more money always that way, right? Right now, the economy is strong. Ad sales are probably relatively good. In a recession, are they going to make more money that way? Probably not. That's my guess. So it's, it's going to be a more volatile business than, hey, I'm getting X amount every month for my subscribers. So I think that's, that, that's something to take note of. Um, but what's interesting here is that higher interest rates and the fact that companies are facing this financial reckoning, uh, that they're losing, look at Disney stock, right? The Disney stock is down in the dumps. And a huge reason, reason why is because they were charging too little. Was it six, seven bucks? They recently raised, raised it to 11. Now they're going to raise it to what, 15? Yeah. So, you know, they've been destroying capital in order to go in, go, go down this road. Um, and this kind of goes back in the big picture to remember the Fed raising and lower interest rates. That's all about demand. But what happens to supply? If you have low interest rates, the cost of capital is low, the cost to invest in a business, to start a new business, et cetera, is low. So that means there's more of them, right? There's, it's easier, shale is a good example. People were drilling shale wells because cost of capital was super cheap and they did so at the detriment to the entire industry. And it wasn't because demand fell off a cliff. Economy kept growing through that time, but it was supply that overwhelmed uh, the demand. And I think that happened in a lot of industries, including technology and in the streaming space, where it's super easy to raise capital, super easy to run negative free cash flow businesses and just issue more and more shares because cost capital was cheap. Now that's flipping and the these companies need to run profitable business models, which means higher prices. And so in some ways, at least on the on the supply side, Higher interest rates are actually inflationary, and this is one example of that. Yeah, definitely. And, and to your point before asking how much can ad revenue actually be generated in a recessionary environment, I would also argue that these are the types of things that are going to be the first thing to go from consumer budgets. Yeah. Nobody's going to want to pay $30 to watch the same – maybe if you have children, you mm-hmm. want to pay $30 to watch the same Disney movie. Yeah. But nobody without kids is going to keep paying $30 a month just to watch the same content over and over again with a writer's strike going on as well. So mm-hmm. this is a really interesting time for studios and streaming services. Yeah, and maybe they just cut it to the ad-supported tier versus the non-ad-supported tier. You'll, you'll certainly see uh, that as well. But what's interesting is 
some companies, including Disney, are actually turning to bundling. Does this sound familiar? Uh, they, if you buy, if you pay for Disney Plus and Hulu together, it's only twenty bucks a month. That's actually kind of a steal compared to the standalone prices of both. Sounds right? like the industry is doing an incredible job recreating cable. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> if you think about it, the 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 difference between a cable channel and a streaming service are from a content perspective not that much different. Nope. Right? You're, there's a certain level of old content that you're paying for. Typically, that's most cable companies are, are are buying that, and then they're producing, paying for some sort of new content, and it's usually a small percentage of of what actually airs. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's still the entertainment business. It's it's it's. At the end of the day, it's all about producing good content. And I think what's most interesting for the individual stocks is going to be what is their ability to spend money efficiently. And that's why HBO, or Max as they call it now, really pro- probably the second dumbest rebranding of the year behind Twitter going to X was <laughs> HBO Max dropping HBO. Uh, um, and now it's just called Max. But at least they have the history of producing good content at reasonable prices you know you th- they throw all these studios they throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks hbo or max is now is the best i think in the business still and the question with a lot of the young streamers like netflix are will they be able to do the same thing long term you know and so do you think this is good for the stock prices though luke well, they have to make money somehow, and certainly, like I said before, given the fact that there's so such retention, even with the two increases in the same year, they haven't pushed consumers to their breaking point. So certainly, yeah. it's it's evidence that they should keep raising prices, though I don't want them to personally, mm-hmm. because yeah. I love my Disney movies. Yeah. I think what's going to happen is you'll have to watch all these, because there's, there's streaming wars, right? Yeah. Where will people coalesce? You know, if you have Amazon Prime... You already have a streaming service. Do you need to pay for another one? Or maybe now instead of going having all of them, maybe you only keep two or three. Or and what even, are those two or three? Or or different from that, what I'm doing personally with Netflix is I'm not going to resubscribe to Netflix until the shows that I like on Netflix are back. So yeah. now you may have consumers that only are there for 10 weeks. Yep. Yeah. So it's uh, this is a feeling out process, I think, over the next five years or so of what is the prevailing price for a good streaming platform and then how many streaming platforms will people truly stick with over the long term and the ones that have the lowest or the highest retention rate excuse me will certainly do the best now we're heading into a break i'm justin klein with luke carrera we're ready to take your questions live at 888 chart when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99 chart. 
Now, in the next Invest Talk, we will look into this story. According to the Redfin CEO, the U.S. housing market has hit rock bottom. The thinking is that even if buyers come to terms with higher rates, home listings remain scarce because homeowners are holding out on listing and selling their homes. That story tomorrow, but for now, let's pivot back to the Invest Talk voice bank for, the question, for a question that came in earlier. Hey, Steve and Justin. Bill from Philadelphia here. I got a question regarding Google stock. I purchased it at around 87. I have a decent amount of shares, and it's uh, it's run up to about 130 right now. And I'm thinking that maybe I should trim a bit some dividend-paying stock. Uh, my eye right now is rising to be at a at a low for the last 10 years or so. So that looks uh, pretty enticing to me. What do you get your thoughts on this? Thanks uh, for what you guys do and looking forward to uh, hearing your answer on the show. All right, now Google, I don't think I need to tell everybody what they do, but uh, certainly the stock had a rough 2022, like most of the growth side of the market, went from about 150 all the way down to a low, around $83 per share. So pretty large pullback, nearly 50% there, uh, and has rallied back up to the 130 level with, once again, the rest of the growth stocks. Now, what's interesting is while growth... Overall, it's starting to roll over. Google is holding pretty strong here. So the relative strength compared to the broader market and the NASDAQ has been pretty good, especially over the past few weeks. So, you know, I, I've said of the FANG names, Apple is, is number one top of the list. Google, to me, is probably second, would you say, Luke, of, of the best businesses of the, the FANG names? Yeah, absolutely. If for no other reason that inertia is a very powerful thing within the tech space. It's a winner-take-all industry, and mm -hmm. Google has dominated search. Yeah, and... Certainly, there are other players that are trying to gain share. Chappy GPT is obviously a potential Bing. risk to them. Bing, yeah, with with Bing, with yeah, AI. Bing, and and they're they're uh, they're they working in uh, Chat GPT, but Google's working on their own AI platform as well. Uh, but what's interesting here is Google, their earnings expectations for this year and next year continue to go up, but er, but growth has slowed. Sales growth last quarter was only seven percent. You're paying. A roughly, you know, high twenties multiple for that type of growth. That's pretty modest in my eyes. So I think this is a good time to rebalance, uh, especially if the growth side of the market's going to roll over like it has over the past few weeks. Eventually, Google will, will follow with it, just simply because it's such a high percentage of the broader indices, whether that's the Nasdaq or the S and P. That money flowing out of the broader indices is going to uh, eventually affect Google. So if you're looking near term. Yeah, I think this is a good time to to be trimming. You know, longer term, I think that's a better question, Luke. Do you think Google will outperform for the broader market over the next you know five ten years? Well, it's it, going back to his original question of should he trim. That's difficult to know, difficult to to say without knowing what the overall weight is in his portfolio. If he holds two percent, maybe he shouldn't trim. If he holds over five percent, maybe he should trim. Um, so certainly that matters. Over the next five to ten years, it's like I just said, this industry more than any industry is a winner take all industry. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, Apple, Google, even you know Microsoft, these companies have been along for for around for so long and they're so entrenched within their specific spaces because mm -hmm. they each have a different niche yeah. that for me it's very difficult to see a new player coming into town and dethroning the king yeah i think the the biggest risk to their broad business is probably from a regulatory standpoint yeah. antitrust you yeah. know right now the ftc is going after amazon mm -hmm. and that could be a good test case to see how successful they are with their arguments and breaking up parts of amazon uh, or maybe rolling back some of their acquisitions and maybe they move on to Google Next because I would say Google in their search, like you said, is probably 
has the most mon monopolistic business yeah. out of the rest of the tech names. Yeah. And so I would see them being in the crosshairs there. So that's probably more of a medium to long-term risk uh, as this Amazon uh, issue plays out. But from a near-term perspective, this is probably a good time to trim. Yeah. I could talk on it for an entire show on antitrust. <laughs> Maybe we do an antitrust special. There you go. Maybe that's a to topic. I could for talk about it for a while. There you go. Okay. Well, yeah, that's an idea going forward. Okay. Now, whenever possible, we have to play two in a row. So let's keep things moving and play another question from 888-99-CHART. Hi. I'm calling in regards to a question on moving averages. I hear you guys talk about I wouldn't buy that stock until it's back to – a 100-day moving average, for example. So looking at VS Corp, it's just now to a 100-day moving average on the daily chart, but on the four-hour chart, it's to the 200-day moving average. So which time frame is more important? Does that depend on what kind of company, or do you just pick one and stay with that? How would you look at that? And which one is more important? I hope that's clear. Thank you guys for all the information. Well, the longer the time frame, the more important that moving average is. Now, if you're looking at different time frames, right? You talked about a daily moving average and then a weekly moving average. And that's what in each chart, it's looking at that particular period. So if you have a 100-day moving average on a, and you have a daily chart, it's going to look at Sorry, 100 period moving average. You know, a daily chart, you're looking at 100 days, the average price over the last 100 days. If you're looking at a weekly chart, that 100 period moving average is going to look at 100 weeks back and look at the, the average price there. So the longer time period you're looking at, the more impactful it is. Now, VF Corp, the technicals are, are improving uh, pretty nicely. So that's kind of a near-term positive above the 100-day moving average for the first time really since... February, and it's now been above there for let's see, four, yeah, four out of the last five days. The first last time it's been there, geez, let's go all the way back. Oh, this is that's been a very good indicator of where uh, trend is for the stock. It hasn't been up f four out of five days above the 100-day moving average since December of 2021, and that was when it was at $76 per share. Now we're at 20. So the technicals are certainly improving, and I like what you're looking at here and understanding that those technicals are shifting. The 100-day moving average is now roughly flat. Another indication that now that downtrend is abating, that momentum on the downside is abating. So I like what you're looking at now. I have to back that up with the fundamentals of VF, VF Corp and their business and whether I, I, I think they can turn it around. Uh, but the technicals are certainly improving. But thanks for the call on moving averages. Now, let's touch a bit on another part of the retail market, and that is Walmart the largest retailer in the world. And it raised its full year forecast uh, in its after its second quarter earnings announcement. And they cited strong demand for low price groceries as well as health and wellness products. That's pretty interesting, especially in light of coming out of COVID and, and, and a, a pandemic. And sales at Walmart stores open at least one year, rose 6.4% if you exclude fuel. And the analyst estimate was only 4.4%. So, that is, is a strong indicator, Luke, that the consumer is pretty healthy. 
Well, it's a mixed bag if you think about it, because what you see is you see strong sales to the consumer at Walmart, but typically when people tend to go to stores like Walmart or Target to buy their groceries, it's because they don't have as much spending power as they mm -hmm. did before. They're trying to stretch each dollar. Exactly. They're trying to stretch each dollar. It is interesting to note that even with this uh, updated guidance, Walmart was down, what, 2.2% today? Yeah, it certainly didn't act very, very well. Uh, same with Home Depot. A lot of the consumer discretionary companies, even if they had good earnings, Earnings didn't do very well. Target, another example where it uh, was up initially and then fell. So it's been kind of all over the place. But yeah, Walmart uh, certainly didn't react to the rack as you would expect to positive guidance. And typically that's bad. When the market's up or the, the, the stock is up, and it has been uh, really since its March lows around $136 per share, it recently hit $160 per share, and it raised guidance but fell, that's a pretty bearish sign. Yeah, but it is interesting to note that they did see a strong seasonal effect in their events, their Memorial Day sale, their July 4th holiday sale. So although the consumer is stretching dollars, they still love a good sale even in these times. Yeah, and, and this is talking about sales. What about margins? Mm -hmm. Right, we, We've seen that is sales have been pretty decent uh, when it comes to earnings announcements, but the, the actual net earnings, the margins continue to be squeezed. Companies uh, are certainly not hiring nearly as much, but they're finding, trying to find ways to lower costs overall. And you know, that, that looks to be what the market's probably more worried about with Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. And more broadly, U.S. retail sales in July actually rose more than expected. So this is kind of in line with what Walmart was saying. Overall, more people dined out. They're boosting online purchases, for example. And mainly it's because people still have jobs. Although the labor market is weakening, the unemployment rate remains very low. And that means consumers keep spending. And the big question is, Student loan payments resume in October, a little over a month away. That's certainly going to impact the the consumer that tends to spend the most, right? Younger people tend to spend the most because they're building families, they're buying homes, they don't have a lot of stuff, so they need to go uh, purchase stuff. So it'll be pretty interesting to see what type of impact that will have really in the fourth quarter. Yeah. All right, now... We've moved, we're moving quickly through the third quarter. Now, Steve and I have been telling you for a while that we are in a new market environment. Fiscal dominance is the name of the game. We are spending a lot of money. Our, our deficits are, are very large. That's one reason why, at least near term, the, the economy is relatively resilient. Consumer spending is resilient. It's because Social Security benef beneficiaries have, what, a 9% increase over last year? You continue to have people who are employed get nice raises, especially because they're looking at 2020 inflation data. Now, probably change this year because inflation has come back. But overall, the consumer is in good shape because of all this government spending. And the big question is in that inflationary environment, how will your portfolio stack up? How will your strategy stack up? It's different than pre-pandemic when inflation was pretty modest. Interest rates are very low. And now you're seeing 10-year back above about four and a quarter. Mortgage rates well above 7% now. Some places approaching 8%. That changed the dynamics of the economy as a whole. You have the Inflation Reduction Act, CHIPS Act. We talked about that yesterday and the amount of spending that's happening in that part of the market. 
and certain sectors will benefit differently than they have in the past. So if you need help understanding where you're at, understanding if your strategy makes sense for the current market environment, I encourage you to reach out to myself or Steve at our company, KPP Financial, where we practice parallel investing, which means you invest right alongside our clients, and we offer free portfolio, portfolio review assessments via telephone or go to meeting. Just head over to investtalk.com or give our office a call at 800 557 5461. The sooner you reach out, the sooner we can help get your portfolio optimized. Now, this is Invest Talk with more than 54.8 million downloads thanks to you. And let's grab another caller question from 888 chart Hey, Steve, Justin, and Luke. I uh, wanted to get your take on IRT, it's Independent Realty Trust, and also STWD, Starwood Property Trust. I have a small position in IRT, and I'm looking to either add to that position or possibly utilize that cash for a Starwood position. IRT has stayed pretty flat since I've owned it, um, but here of late, it's dropped a bit. So curious of your opinion on this stock. And also, too, I believe you answered my question for Starwood, Justin. You briefly discussed it this past Wednesday um, and just gave me, you know, it gave me enough insight to kind of keep it in my watch list for now. Um, but also, I do want to hear your opinion on it. Uh, last, I believe uh, I heard you guys mentioned a REIT webinar that you guys did, and I would like to listen to it, but not sure where to find it. So if you could point me in the right direction, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you for all that you do for us, and I look forward to hearing your answer on the podcast. Well, you go find you can go find that REIT webinar on our YouTube channel. We did that, what, was that in June? I believe it was in June, yeah. Yeah, I believe it was in June. So you can go find that over on our YouTube channel. We do dive into real estate more broadly as well as REITs. Now, you're looking at two different types of REITs. One is IRT, Independence Realty Trust. They own 120 apartment properties throughout the United States. And this is in a clear downtrend. And a big reason for that, I think, is because rents are now going down if you look uh, a year over now, year over year, uh, I know the CPI, the shelter inflation, it's lagging. Uh, but if you look at new rents that are being signed in most markets, it's actually negative, and that's your issue here, uh, I think, with independent realty. And then Starwood, that is a mortgage REIT. Now, the big question is, what's the history of their allocation of capital compared to some of the other mortgage REITs? Most mortgage REITs. Don't do a good job of this. They tend to pay out uh, basically your own money back. They issue more shares, and that's what Starboard can continue to do, issue more and more shares over the last 10 years. 10 years ago, they had 195 million shares outstanding. Now they have 312 million shares outstanding. So most of those dividend payments are either by adding more and more debt on their balance sheet, and that's also gone up from about $3.4 billion to $9.3 billion over the last 10 years. Luke, do either one of these look attractive to you? For me, not really. Specifically, Starwood, I think given the line of business they're in, this is a particularly difficult time to be involved in commercial lending. Mm -hmm. um, I think you have a situation where you're going to have a lot of people that tend to just walk away from the commercial loans that they've, that they've signed on for. Mm -hmm. One thing that I have stressed is try and find, given these turbulent times raising interest rates, if you're looking for REIT exposure, find REITs with low debt. Mm -hmm. that still have room to issue debt and have a lot of internally generated profits that they can reinvest in their business. So, and, and that their assets have secular tailwinds versus headwinds. Exactly. So yeah. we're talking storage REITs. We're talking gambling REITs, you know, mm -hmm. those, those, those things that tend industrial to be REITs. industrial REITs, those yep. things that tend to not suffer as well in economic or suffer as much rather in economic downtimes. Yeah. If I'm picking one or the other, I'm going to pick IRT, but yes. not, not now, you know, the, the technicals are, are very poor. Uh, like I said, 
rents are shrinking. And so you want to be looking at a very different part of the REIT space. Frankly, probably you're going to find a REIT that yields less than these. And that's what you actually want. You want, in this environment, you don't want a high yielding REIT. That's because, that means there's a lot of problems with the underlying assets that they own. So uh, I'm passing on both IRT and Starwood. Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Carrero, and we have one goal each and every weekday, and that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888-99-CHART. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. 8899 chart, 8899242780. I get through and ask your question. Now, let's touch a bit on China and you know, there's been a, a lot of hand rigging, shall you, shall you call it, uh, about the inflation data over in China. And most recently, that's because on a year-over-year basis, China has fallen into deflation. And there's a lot of concerns about the property sector, most importantly. But overall, output is still expected to grow about 5% this year when it comes to economic growth. But consumer prices fell 0.3% year-over-year in July. Now, this happened previously in 2021 as well. So, you know, the big question, is this base effects or is this now a trend in China where they're heading into a deflationary spiral? And you could argue, maybe because of, because of demographic issues we've talked about in a while, maybe this is more entrenched. What do you think, Luke? Yeah, I mean, certainly that could be a problem. I don't think there's enough evidence to suggest, given the base effects of the latest data, that this is a wide problem a la the style of Japan. Mm -hmm. But certainly it's something that could be concerning. I think the important note here is that people treat global inflation in the same way, but it's happening in different locations for different reasons. It's certainly regional, right? In Mm -hmm. Europe, the issue wasn't the demand like it was in the United States, where people saved a lot of money, they were spending a lot of money in the US. In Europe, the problem was the war in Eastern Europe and the cost of energy and Russian natural gas supplies being shut off. And so when you have different dynamics happening in different parts of the world, it's not necessarily the case that one large effect, even an economy as big as China, is going to be exported wholeheartedly to the rest of the world. Yeah, and in China, one of the big factors of why there was actually deflation was the price of pork was on 26% uh, year over year. And if you strip out energy and food, so core inflation, it was actually still up 0.4% in June, 0.8% in July. So still not high, but not in deflation either. And I think the big question for China going forward is, how will they manage a clear shift by the West, both Europe and the US, to diversify their supply chains away from uh, China? Are they still going to be able to employ a lot of young people? I know that's an issue. Youth unemployment is pretty high. They even stopped 
stop reporting, reporting that number. Yeah. That's how bad it is right now. Uh, and, and that's certainly deflationary. When people don't have jobs, that that's certainly uh, deflationary. And so what will the longer-term trajectory be in China? That's why I'm not a big fan of investing in China over the, the medium term. And, and you can see that in the Chinese factory prices, down 4.4% year-over-year in July. So that there's overcapacity there, and comp- and that's companies aren't produce aren't investing more in new capacity in China because of that overcapacity. So, uh, you know, China has contributed to forty percent of global growth in the last ten years. So, I think that's the bigger question: is what type of impact will this have globally on on prices? So, it looks like you're having a deflationary impulse in China, but inflationary impulses everywhere else, and. How much will that bleed? I think on the consu- on the good side, that certainly will bleed and has has bled. And you see that in prices here in the U.S. for physical goods, th- there's pretty much no inflation there. It's almost all on the service side. But on the counter side, as 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 European and American economies are diversifying, or rather bringing their supply chains back on shore, if you have this deflationary environment in China and you don't have the demand issues that you have in the United States, what ends up happening is you have less competition for Europe to get non-Russian natural gas. So this could actually be a benefit in a way to European economies that have been struggling with the high cost of uh, gas and energy. Yeah, because China is a huge importer of, of energy. And if they need less, then that's going to make it easier for the rest of the world. Now, lastly, I wanted, we wanted to highlight this uh, pretty interesting story on VinFast. VFS is the stock symbol. And briefly yesterday, at a value double of GM. And it just it, what, what's happening here, Luke, right, is there's very limited float, which is very common in these new issues. Uh, and that makes the price discovery very difficult when there's not very many shares outstanding. Exactly. It has only ever sold roughly 11,000 cars. So the big lesson here is to pay attention to what the news is talking about. Dig in a little bit more. Don't just buy the company that has had a huge run-up in the past couple of days. And it's only sold 137 here in the U.S. Not a lot. So shouldn't be worth more. That is slightly years. more than I have sold in the United States. <laughs> slightly more, exactly. All right, well, that does it. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and this completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. And, of course, it'd be great if you told your friends about our new free sector spotlight. Episode 2 is up over on the energy sector on YouTube. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.